Chapter 14 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. Chapter 14, Section 5. The Personal and the Impersonal Unconscious. The fourth stage of our newly won insight is now reached. The analytical dissolution of the infantile transference fantasies was continued until it became sufficiently clear, even to the patient, that he was making his physician into father, mother, uncle, guardian, teacher, friend, or any other kind of surrogate for parental authority conceivable. But, as experience is consistently proving, further fantasies make their appearance representing the physician as savior or some other divine being. Obviously, this is in flagrant contradiction to the sane reasoning of consciousness. Moreover, it appears that these divine attributes considerably overstep the bounds of the Christian conception in which we grew up. They even assume the guise of heathen allurements and, for instance, not infrequently assume the form of animals. The transference is in itself nothing but a projection of unconscious contents onto the analyst. At first, it is the so-called superficial contents that are projected. During this stage, the physician is interesting as a possible lover, somewhat after the manner of the young Italian in our case. Later on, he is a representation of the father, and is a symbol either of kindness or of severity, according to what the patient formerly imputed to his real father. Occasionally, the doctor even appears to the patient as a kind of mother, which, though sounding somewhat strange, really lies well within the bounds of possibility, all these projections of fantasy have an underlying basis of personal reminiscences. But presently, other forms of fantasy appear, bearing an extravagantly effusive and impossible character. The physician now appears to be endowed with uncanny qualities. He may be either a wizard or a demonical criminal, or his counterpart of virtue, a savior. Later on, he appears as an incomprehensible mixture of both sides. It should be clearly understood that the physician does not appear to the patient's consciousness in these forms, but that the fantasies come up to the surface representing the doctor in this guise. If, as is not seldom the case, the patient cannot forthwith perceive that his view of the physician is a projection of his own unconscious, then he will probably behave rather foolishly. Difficulties often arise at this stage of analysis, making severe demands upon the goodwill and patience of both physician and patient. In a few exceptional cases, a patient cannot refrain from disseminating the stupidest tales about the physician. Such people cannot get it into their head that, as a matter of fact, their fantasies originate in themselves and have nothing or very little to do with the physician's actual character. The pertinacity of this error arises from the circumstance that there is no foundation of personal memory for this particular kind of projection. It is occasionally possible to prove that similar fantasies, for which neither parent gave reasonable occasion, had at some time in childhood been attached to the father or mother. In one of his shorter books, Freud has shown how Leonardo da Vinci was influenced in his later life by the fact that he had two mothers. The fact of the two mothers, or the double descent, has indeed a reality in Leonardo's case, but it plays a part with other artists as well. Benvenuto Cellini had this fantasy of a double descent. It is unquestionably a mythological theme. Many heroes of legend have two mothers. The fantasy is not founded upon the actual fact of the heroes having two mothers, but is a widespread, primordial image belonging to the secrets of the universal history of the human mind. It does not belong to the sphere of personal reminiscences. 
In every individual, in addition to the personal memories, there are also, in Jacob Berkup's excellent phrase, the great primordial images, the inherited potentialities of human imagination. They have always been potentially latent in the structure of the brain. The fact of this inheritance also explains the otherwise incredible phenomenon that the matter and themes of certain legends are met with all over the world in identical forms. Further, it explains how it is that persons who are mentally deranged are able to produce precisely the same images and associations that are known to us from the study of old manuscripts. I gave some examples of this in my book, The Psychology of the Unconscious. I do not hereby assert the transmission of representations, but only of the possibility of such representations, which is a very different thing. It is, therefore, in this further stage of the transference that those fantasies are produced that have no basis in personal reminiscence. Here it is a matter of the manifestation of the deeper layers of the unconscious, where the primordial, universally human images are lying dormant. This discovery leads to the fourth stage of a new conception, that is, to the recognition of a differentiation in the unconscious itself. We are now obliged to differentiate a personal unconscious and an impersonal or superpersonal unconscious. We also term the latter the absolute or collective unconscious because it is quite detached from what is personal and because it is also absolutely universal. Wherefore, its contents may be found in every head, which of course is not the case with personal contents. The primordial images are quite the most ancient, universal, and deep thoughts of mankind. They are feeling just as much as thought, and might therefore be termed original thought feelings. We have therewith now found the object selected by the libido when it was freed from the personal, infantile form of transference, namely that it sinks down into the depths of the unconscious, reviving that which has been dormant there from immemorial ages. It has discovered the buried treasure out of which mankind from time to time has drawn, raising thence its gods and demons, and all those finest and most tremendous thoughts without which man would cease to be man. Let us take as an example one of the greatest thoughts to which the 19th century gave birth, the idea of the conservation of energy. Robert Mayer is the originator of this idea. He was a physician, not a physicist nor a natural philosopher, to either of whom the creation of such an idea would have been more germane. It is of great importance to realize that, in the real sense of the word, Robert Mayer's idea was not created. Neither was it brought about by the fusion of the then-existent conceptions and scientific hypotheses. It grew in the originator and was conditioned by him. In 1841, Robert Mayer wrote to Gracinger as follows, I by no means concocted the theory at the writing desk. He goes on to report about certain physiological investigations that he made in 1840 and 41 as doctor on board ship and continues. If one wishes to be enlightened about physiological matters, some knowledge of the physical processes is indispensable unless one prefers to work from the metaphysical side, which is immensely distasteful to me. I therefore kept to physics, clinging to the subject with such ardor that, though it may well seem ridiculous to say so, I cared little about what part of the world we were in. I preferred to remain aboard where I could work uninterruptedly, and where many an hour gave me such a feeling of being inspired in a way I can never remember having experienced, either before or since. A few flashes of thought that thrilled through me, this was in the harbor of Surabaya, were immediately diligently pursued, leading again in their turn to new subjects. Those times are past, but subsequent quiet examination of what then emerged has taught me that it was a truth which cannot only be subjectively felt, but also proved objectively. Whether this could have been done by one who has so little knowledge of physics as I have is a matter which, obviously, I must leave undecided. Heim, in his book on energetics, expresses the opinion, 
that Robert Mayer's new thought did not gradually detach itself by dint of revolving it in his mind from the conceptions of power transmitted from the past, but belongs to those ideas that are intuitively conceived, which, originating in other spheres of a mental kind, surprise thought, as it were, compelling it to transform its inherited notions conformably with those ideas. The question now arises, whence did this new idea that forced itself upon consciousness with such elemental power spring? And whence did it derive such strength that it was able to affect consciousness so forcibly that it could be completely withdrawn from all manifold impressions of a first voyage in the tropics? These questions are not easy to answer. If we apply our theory to this case, the explanation would run as follows. The idea of energy and of its conservation must be a primordial image that lay dormant in the absolute unconscious. This conclusion obviously compels us to prove that a similar primordial image did really exist in the history of the human mind and continued to be effective through thousands of years. As a matter of fact, evidence of this can be produced without difficulty. Primitive religions in the most dissimilar regions of the earth are founded upon this image. These are the so-called dynamistic religions, whose sole and distinctive thought is the existence of some universal magical power upon which everything depends. The well-known English scholars Taylor and Fraser both wrongly interpreted this idea as animism. Primitive peoples do not mean souls or spirits by their conception of power, but in reality something that the American investigator Lovejoy most aptly terms primitive energetics. In an investigation appertaining to this subject, I showed that this notion comprises the idea of soul, spirit, God, health, physical strength, fertility, magic power, influence, might, prestige, curative remedies, as well as certain states of mind which are characterized by the setting loose of effects. Among certain Polynesians, melunga, that is, this primitive concept of energy, is spirit, soul, demonical being, magic, prestige. If anything astonishing happens, the people cry out, melungu! This notion of power is also the first rendering of the concept of God among primitive peoples. The image has undergone many variations in the course of history. In the Old Testament, this magic power is seen in the burning bush and shines in the face of Moses. It is manifest in the Gospels as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as cloven tongues of fire from heaven. In Heraclitus, it appears as universal energy, as eternally living fire. For the Persians, it is the fiery brightness, hyoma, divine mercy. For the Stoics, it is hymarmene, the power of destiny. In medieval legend, it is seen as the aura, or the halo, of the saint. It blazes forth in great flames from the hut where the saint is lying in ecstasy. The saints reflect the sum of this power, the storehouse of light in their faces. According to the ancient concepts, this power is the soul itself. The idea of its immortality contains that of its conservation. The Buddhistic and primitive conception of the metempsychosis, transmigration of souls, contains the idea of its unlimited capacity for transformation under constant conservation. This thought has obviously, therefore, been imprinted on the human brain for untold ages. That's why it lies ready in the unconscious of everyone. Only certain conditions are needed in order to let it appear again. These conditions were obviously fulfilled in the example of Robert Mayer. The greatest and best thoughts form themselves upon these primordial images, which are the ancient common property of humanity. After this instance of the nascence of new ideas out of the treasury of primordial images, we will resume the further delineation of the process of transference. It was seen that the libido of the patient seizes upon its new object in those apparently preposterous and peculiar fantasies, namely the contents of the absolute unconscious. 
As I already observed, the unacknowledged projection of primordial images upon the physician constitutes a danger for further treatment, which should not be undervalued. The images contain not only every beautiful and great thought and feeling of humanity, but also every deed of shame and devilry of which human beings have ever been capable. Now, if the patient cannot differentiate the physician's personality from these projections, there is an end to mutual understanding, and human relations become impossible. If, however, the patient avoids this charybdis, he falls into the scylla of introjecting these images, that is, he does not ascribe their qualities to the physician, but to himself. This peril is just as great. If he projects, he vacillates between an extravagant and morbid deification and a spiteful contempt of his physician. In the case of introjection, he falls into a ludicrous self-deification or moral self-laceration. The mistake that he makes in both cases consists in attributing the contents of the absolute unconscious to himself personally. Thus, he makes himself into both God and devil. This is a psychological reason why human beings have always needed demons and could not live without gods. There is the exception, of course, of a few specially clever specimens of the Homo Occidentalis of yesterday and the day before. Supermen whose god is dead, wherefore they themselves become gods. There is also the example of Nietzsche, who confessedly required chloral in order to be able to exist. These supermen even become rationalistic petty gods with thick skulls and cold hearts. The concept of god is simply a necessary psychological function of an irrational nature that has altogether no connection with the question of God's existence. This latter question is one of the most fatuous that can be put. It is indeed sufficiently evident that man cannot conceive a God, much less realize that he actually exists, so little is he able to imagine a process that is not causally conditioned. Theoretically, of course, no accidentality can exist. That is certain, once and for all. On the other hand, in practical life, we are continually stumbling upon accidental happenings. It is similar with the existence of God. It is once and for all an absurd problem. But the consensus gentium has spoken of gods for eons past, and will be speaking of them in eons to come. Beautiful and perfect as man may think his reason, he may nevertheless assure himself that it is only one of the possible mental functions, coinciding merely with the corresponding side of the phenomena of the universe. All around is the irrational, that which is not congruous with reason. And this irrationalism is likewise a psychological function, namely, the absolute unconscious, whilst the function of consciousness is essentially rational. Consciousness must have rational relations, first of all, in order to discover some order in the chaos of disordered individual phenomena in the universe, and secondly, in order to labor at whatever lies within the area of human possibility. We are laudably and usefully endeavoring to exterminate, so far as is practicable, the chaos of what is irrational both in and around us. Apparently, we are making considerable progress with this process. A mental patient once said to me, Last night, doctor, I disinfected the whole heavens with sublimate, and yet did not discover any god. Something of the kind has happened to us. Heraclitus the Ancient, that really very wise man, discovered the most wonderful of all psychological laws, namely, the regulating function of antithesis. He termed this in antiodromia, that is, clashing together, by which he meant that at some time everything meets with its opposite. Here I beg to remind the reader of the case of the American businessman, which shows the enantiodromia most distinctly. The rational attitude of civilization necessarily terminates in its antithesis, namely, in the irrational devastation of civilization. Man may not identify himself with reason, for he is not wholly a rational being, 
and never can or ever will become one. That is a fact of which every pedant of civilization should take note. What is irrational cannot and may not be stamped out. The gods cannot and may not die. Woe betide those men who have disinfected heaven with rationalism. God Almightiness has entered into them because they would not admit God as an absolute function. They are identified with their unconscious and are therefore its sport. For where God is nearest, there the danger is greatest. Is the present war supposed to be a war of economics? That's a neutral American business-like standpoint that does not take the blood, tears, unprecedented deeds of infamy and great distress into account, and which completely ignores the fact that this war is really an epidemic of madness. The several parties project their unconscious upon each other, hence the mad confusion of ideas in every head. This is the enantiodomia that occurs in the individual life of man, as well as in that of peoples. The legend of the Tower of Babel turns out to be a tenable truth. Only he escapes from the cruel law of enantiodomia, who knows how to separate himself from the unconscious, not by repressing it, for then it seizes him from behind, but by presenting it visibly to himself as something that is totally different from him. This gives the solution of the Scylla and Charybdis problem, which I described above. The patient must learn to differentiate in his thoughts between what is the ego and what is the non-ego. The latter is the collective psyche, or absolute unconscious. By this means, he will acquire the material with which, henceforward for a long time, he will have to come to terms. Thereby, the energy that before was invested in unsuitable pathological forms will have found its appropriate sphere. In order to differentiate the psychological ego from the psychological non-ego, man must necessarily stand upon firm feet in his ego function, that is, he must fulfill his duty towards life completely, so that he may, in every respect, be a vitally living member of human society. Anything that he neglects in this respect descends into the unconscious and reinforces its position so that he is in danger of being swallowed up by it if his ego function is not established. Severe penalties are attached to that. As indicated by old Synesius, the spiritualized soul, pneumatike psyche, becomes both god and demon, a state in which it suffers the divine penalties, that is, it suffers being torn asunder by the Zagreus, an experience which Nietzsche also underwent at the beginning of his insanity, where, in Ecce Homo, the god whom he was despairingly resisting in front assailed him from behind. In antiodromia is the being torn asunder into the pairs of opposites, which opposites are only proper to the god, and therefore also to the deified man, who owes likeness to God, to his having prevailed over his gods. End of chapter 14, section 5. Read by Olivia.